The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. So glad that you could join us today because our topic today and our guests today um, are just something that are just so exciting. I'm excited to have Philippe Cousteau with us. He's been with us before. At the time, we were talking about some of the Earth Echo International projects that he was working on earlier this year. Um, but now he has a brand new program, and it's all about the connection between the food choices we make and our water quality, water pollution, and some other issues issues that are going on in our waterways that we're going to be talking about today. His organization, Earth Echo International, has just introduced a new guide called What's on Your Fork and some lesson plans for middle and high school students that are going to help them understand the connection between what they eat and our water and, and what's happening to our waterways. And uh, I'm just so excited to have you on, Philippe. Welcome to Green Radio. Thrilled to be back, Jill. Thank you. You know, I think that a lot of average Americans understand that it takes clean water to produce the food they eat. You know, the crops have to be watered, animals have to be given water. But I don't think a lot of people understand that our food choices can actually contribute to water pollution. And I'd love for you to help our listeners understand how that's true. Well, Joe, this has been an issue that's that's been in the headlines for a few years now, really the connection between, you know, food and the environment, especially when you think of places like the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, our focus for so long with Earth Echo has, has been looking at, at the health of our water planet and sustainability and empowering people to take action to improve the health of, of our planet. And so to that respect, we've, we've been looking at this issue of, of water and conservation and food for a long time. And we just recently partnered and decided, you know, we don't like to reinvent the wheel. So we partnered with groups like uh, Toyota Foundation, the Discovery Education Group, Participant Media, John Hopkins Center for a Liberal Future, Meatless Mondays program, all to bring together these different organizations that are working on this issue to create resources to help people understand the connection that you just talked about. And I'll give you a couple examples. You know, in the United States, we have an estimated 173,000 miles of national water waterways that are uh, impacted by agricultural runoff and pollution. Um, we have about uh, 55% of soil and sediment erosion is equated with animal farming, 37% of nationwide pesticide usage, and 80% of antibiotic usage is all connected to animal farming in this country. So, yeah, right, there is you know, usage of water and resources that go in to creating the food. There's also a lot of waste that comes from our consumption of food. 
Well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had Dr. Robert Glennon on the show. He's the author of Unquenchable, um, America's Water Crisis and What to Do About It. And he was talking about how some downstates uh, are suing upstream states in the United States over things like uh, chicken farm feces in the water and that sort of thing. And there's just these mass production of of you know, animals that are being raised to be eaten, um, creating that kind of water pollution. It's, it's a bigger problem than I think a lot of Americans realize. There's also this issue of dead zones and you have a lesson plan included in your new program called Dead Zones for Dinner. Talk to us about what causes a dead zone. Well, it's a great, it's a great question, Joe. You know, and I spent a lot of time covering the horrible catastrophe that was the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico just a a year and a half ago or so. And what a lot of people don't recognize is that the Gulf of Mexico was already in dire straits, in a lot of trouble because of this issue, runoff and dead zones, largely caused by agricultural runoff, uh, phosphorus, uh, nitrogen, uh, waste that comes out of both the feces of, of farmed animals as well as uh, fertilizer that run down out of uh, you know the central United States to various different rivers and collect in the Mississippi River and then flows down into the Gulf of Mexico and every spring there is a dead zone the size uh, roughly the size or a little larger actually than New Jersey now a dead zone is essentially an area where the status quo of, of, of life cannot exist in other words it is what it says it's a dead zone literally where where animal life um, can't sustain itself. And in the case of the Gulf of Mexico, what causes that largely is this phosphorus and nitrogen, which in the same way that it's considered a, a fertilizer compounds on land for plants, it does the same thing in the ocean. So algae loves that phosphorus and loves that nitrogen. And so you have an explosion of algae population in this region of the Gulf of Mexico. And it actually happens in regions similar to this around the world. And then when that algae dies, the bacteria that feeds on that algae, an animal consumes oxygen. So in the case of the Gulf of Mexico, this dead zone is caused by the lack, literally the lack of oxygen and animals, fish, etc., that live in that area suffocate, literally suffocate in the water because the oxygen is gone. And that causes this humongous dead zone with huge impacts on the fishing industry and the livelihoods of people that live in the Gulf of Mexico. And we can't forget that the fisheries, for example, in the Gulf of Mexico, not to mention the tourism, contributes billions and billions of dollars to our national economy every year. So it affects every human uh, being in the United States. Well, and it's also affecting our food chain. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's like we're uh, creating a food chain above the water or on land and subjugating the marine and seafood industry to the you know the the negative impact of that can you imagine what would be you know going on if a landmass the size of new jersey above the water were a dead zone i mean it's kind of amazing that uh, there's not a, a public outcry about this you know it's it's the it's the age old challenge and dilemma that we face with respect to ocean conservation or conservation of any water system, out of sight, out of mind. And the idea, you're, you're absolutely correct, that the types of abuse that goes on, the, the, the types of waste, be it uh, caused by dead zones and runoff pollution, or be it fisheries abuse, uh, the way we fish for certain types of, of animals in the ocean, would never, ever be allowed on land. 
Mm-hmm. So true. Now, you know, there are a lot of people in the U.S. and around the world who don't live near a waterway. They don't live – well, they, everybody lives near a waterway, but they don't live near a coast. And some people don't even like seafood. And they may wonder why they should care about a dead zone. You know, in other words, how does it impact their lives? And what do you say to people who may not be concerned enough about dead zones and other, like you said, abuses to the ocean ecosystem um, to take any action? What do you say to them to help them care? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's all part, if you want to be totally cynical about it, or if one wants to be cynical about it, right now there's a lot of talk about uh, uh, the, the economy and the, and the struggles that our economy is undergoing. And let's say that, uh, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Index affects every human being in the economy in the United States, uh, even though an individual may not be invested in the Dow or any stocks held on the New York Stock Exchange, their performance still affects our national economy and whether or not uh, we stay in recession or, or really are able to you know, get out of this, this awful economic situ- situation that is causing the suffering of, of so many people. The same thing happens when you talk about the environment. Uh, fisheries is a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. And when we degrade those systems, we are affecting the national economy. And we are, whether you eat seafood or not, or whether you're affected by it or not, we're affecting people's livelihoods. So give you a great example. Seafood in the Gulf of Mexico is not a, a lot of the processing for that seafood doesn't actually occur in the regions of the Gulf of Mexico, in Louisiana or in Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, Florida. A lot of it happens outside of the United States, uh, excuse me, of those states. So there's a multiplier effect on that seafood for the processing of that seafood, the canning of that seafood, or imagine um, the, the restaurant industry uh, that supports so many people around this country. As that seafood is exported out of those states all the way up, I know that, that blue crabs that are so enjoyed, uh, I live in Washington, D.C., around the Chesapeake Bay, a lot of them don't come from the Chesapeake Bay because the Chesapeake Bay is also suffering from runoff, agricultural runoff from chicken farms, etc. A lot of those blue crabs used to come from Louisiana. That supports a lot of people's livelihoods in the restaurant trade, in the shipping trade, in the packaging trade. So there's, there's an exponential impact of, of seafood and of the industry uh, that affects every American in this country and the, the, the national economy in a, in a pretty tremendous way. Well, it's kind of the economic version of what we all know is true in ecology, um, and that is that we're all connected. It's one big web, um, and, and it's so true. As, it's as much uh, a fact of economy as it is the environment and uh, the trickle-down effect of and the ripple effect of uh, what we do to certain areas ecologically and economically. You know, back to kids, we're talking about the lesson plans that you have created and that you have made available for free on mm-hmm. Earth Echo International, in many ways, kids are kind of limited in terms of their food choices. Some of them have to eat breakfast and lunch at school, so they're kind of um, they're bound by the decisions that school nutrition folks make. At home, they're often not the ones going to the grocery store. So when you're promoting a program like this that encourages them to make different food choices, um, what what do you do for kids and what do you say to kids who are in a situation where they don't have a lot of control over the food choices that they are given? Well, you know, we all of what we're about at Earth Echo is really helping people understand the power, especially young people, understand the power that they have to influence the, the decisions that are made in, in their lives from their parents 
be it, uh, be it at school. And that's what our program, uh, What's on Your Fork, this, this new campaign that we're launching with, uh, in partnership with, with all these organizations, is all about. It's really helping kids understand that, wow, you know, you can actually ha- affect what kind of choices you make uh, and what your parents make uh, when, they, when they purchase, what kind of choices and options are available at school. I've seen kids pass laws. I've seen kids raise incredible amounts of money. I've seen kids change institutions and in the, in the policies at school institutions uh, all over the country. I, I know one, uh, one group of kids, uh, an elementary school, Title I, 100% free and reduced lunch down in South Florida, where um, they started a garden. This is an elementary school, started a garden. Uh, the, the school support, you know, came around and supported this project. And uh, these are kids who pretty much only have access at home to the corner stores and uh, live in largely in these terms that's becoming popular food deserts where they have access maybe to an apple and an orange at the corner store. And now it's, the, it's one of the most popular elements of the school. These kids run down to this garden that they're taking care of. Um, that food is, is ending up in their school uh, uh, meals. It took a little bit of work on an administrative side to change the policies, but that's happening. And now these kids are eating sugar snap peas and lettuce and tomatoes and, and carrots off the vine and out of the ground. And it's changing their relationship with food, and it's driven by the kids themselves. So you know, we're really about saying young people have a tremendous amount of power to take action. They don't just have to sit down and, uh, and, and take what's given to them. Beautifully said. And in fact, we have several schools within the network of the Go Green Initiative, which is the nonprofit organization that I run, um, mm-hmm. where we have kids that have gone to their state capitals and absolutely been hugely influential and passed laws for everything from uh, protecting our waterways from pharmaceuticals. We have a school, a little bitty town in Illinois, in Pontiac, mm-hmm. Illinois, where they have done that and, and many, many examples. So you're exactly right. Beautifully said. Let's empower uh, those young people. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, there's much more with Philippe Cousteau. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is CNN International Correspondent Philippe Cousteau. And honestly, he doesn't need any introduction unless you never watch CNN, never watch Discovery Channel, or just know absolutely nothing about the Cousteau family. But he is the grandson of the infamous and legendary Captain Jacques Cousteau. And everybody knows um, what a brilliant job he and his son, Philippe uh, Sr., did to bring the ocean alive and into our living rooms for all of us landlubbers who would otherwise not have enjoyed all the beautiful footage that he has brought. Well, now we're we're here with another generation of Cousteau's, and Philippe is out, and he's taking cameras with him all over the world, bringing um, wonderful stories, educational stories, and, and truly heartbreaking stories when you covered the Gulf oil spill uh, to all of us and making it so meaningful to us. You've just developed uh, a brand new program that's available on your website, Earth Echo International. You mm-hmm. all have to check it out. Um, one of the lesson plans that you have available for middle and high school students, I think, is so great, um, is based on the documentary Food Inc., which, incidentally, my daughter studies agricultural business at Montana State University, so she and I have watched this together, and we talk about it a lot. Well, I'm curious, as, a, as an ocean advocate and marine life advocate, why did you choose this particular documentary is sort of the hub or the basis for this lesson plan about teaching kids the connection between the food choices they make and and water conservation and and water life protection. Food Inc. is a documentary that I highly recommend. And in fact, for those of you who haven't seen it, you can actually even buy it or rent it on Amazon.com. One of the things that I love about what Philippe is doing is that uh, he has got his website up, earthechointernational.org. And if you check it out, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, or you happen to be a middle or high school student, um, you can check out a lesson plan that he's got there that helps you understand exactly the connection um, between your food choices and what's going on with our waterways. I think that you know, a lot of folks are hoping um, that we can see uh, uh, some change in the way that our food production comes to us. Um, we've got a lot of uh, organics that we can purchase in the grocery store. A lot of people go to farmers markets and what have you. But I think that a lot of this uh, change that we're hoping to see and a more ecologically friendly um, 
a way of doing business in terms of our food production will really come from consumer demand. You know, a few weeks ago, we had on some folks from Safeway, um, and they're one of the largest grocery chains in America. And I asked their vice president of supply chain, what would make the biggest difference in how... Yeah. I was just saying that, uh, you know, in the United States, the general public eats two to three times more protein um, than they need for their health. And yet, according to the... um, uh, various different reports out there, the health department, et cetera, we consume less than 1% um, of our daily allotment of fruits and vegetables. So, you know, that's the type of information that we're really trying to bring forward to help young people understand that and, and really empower them to embrace a, a campaign called Meatless Mondays where they make sure that, you know, they at least have one day a week a plant-based choice for their meals. Well, and I think that's great. And in fact, you know, a few weeks ago, I was just mentioning to our listeners that we had some folks on from Safeway, uh, the vice president of global supply chain for Safeway. And we asked him, what would make the biggest difference in what kinds of fruits, vegetables, meats, etc., cetera, uh, that you make available to the people who shop at your grocery chains? And he said, consumer feedback. And so that's one of the things that I know your program is hoping to inspire, which is consumer demand for products that are good for them, but also good for the environment. But I'm, I want to ask you, Philippe, you know, right now we have one in seven Americans on food stamps. And I, how much hope do you have that these kinds of changes within our, our country's food production will come from consumer demand when we have, you know, such, uh, such difficult times economically? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a, a challenge. I, I have a lot of hope when I travel around the country and, and work with young people, and re- really, that's why we focus on kids. And really, the idea that you know they understand, they care about the environment much more than on on average than do adults. Uh, they are engaged, or they they have the opportunity to be engaged in their communities. They have a huge influence on consumer demand. And we really believe that we really believe in young people. We really, we really believe in giving them information and knowledge. And we're not saying that we need to radically change our our you know become vegetarian. We're really just helping young people understand that, that they should have a choice and that, um, you know, even though Congress, for example, just a few weeks ago, uh, you know, denied uh, more stringency in terms of uh, school lunch standards and blocked new rules to, uh, to provide more healthy uh, uh, nutritional alternatives to young people in schools, we don't just have to rely on our politicians and adults. And, and a lot of young people out there that I visit, like I said, those kids, those elementary kids in, in South Florida, when they had the option to have wonderful, healthy local food, they loved it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it was really putting the power into their hands to create that consumer demand. Well, and you know, I don't know if my kids' public school district is different from others, but our Child Nutrition Services has created a Facebook page. And let me tell you, there are a lot of middle and high school students telling them exactly what they think every day of whether or not the school lunches are good, healthy, greasy or not, and uh, affordable. And so I think that kids through social media and a number of different venues, even showing up at the school board meetings, have a lot more say than maybe they even realize and I'm hoping that your curriculum will inspire them to do that. Well, you know, Jill, it's preposterous to, for us to say, oh, kids, they just want junk food, so they shouldn't deserve it. They don't deserve anything better. We shouldn't offer them anything better and relegate them to that fate. 
uh, kids are, are much smarter than we give them credit for. They're much more engaged than we give them credit for, and they should have choices. And that's what this program is about. It's helping kids understand that they can do a program to ensure that they have choices that will help their health. I mean, we talk about environment and, and economy. It's pretty shocking to think about how many um, uh, the obesity issue in this country, mm-hmm. the amount of childhood diabetes that's happening because yeah. of, of the food systems that we eat. So it's it's not fair, I think, for us to just write off kids and, and, and write off their choices uh, as unhealthy and not going to change um, because the, all of those issues have a huge impact on our economy and our health system. Um, and we really believe in that, that young people have the power to and, and do take action when they're empowered. Right on. <laughs> you know, Philippe, your family name is synonymous with environmental protection. I mean, for at least three generations, when people think of a Cousteau, they think of someone who takes action to preserve the precious resources of the planet. And for a lot of us who are parents, we're just wondering how that family value was bestowed upon each consecutive generation. If we wanted to raise children who, like your the children in your family, grew up to not only treasure natural resources, but actually took action and inspired others to take action on behalf of those natural resources, what should we be telling them? What should we be showing them? What happened in your living room and around your kitchen table that made you the way you are? You know, I have to credit my mother. I grew up... Um my father died six months before I was born, and so I, I had the legacy of, a, of an amazing family, but I really credit my mom, a single mom who raised my sister and I, and, and um, really just told us every day that, that, that we had power, that she believed in us. I think a lot of that falls onto the, the, the either adult mentors or the parents in, in a family to just believe in young people, and when they want to do something, uh, to not dismiss it and write it off, but to say, you know, how can I help? How can I be supportive? And that's what the Water Planet Challenge at Earth Echo, that's what our Meatless Mondays, What's on Your Fork program is all about. So we believe in young people, and we want to provide the support to them and the support to families to take action however they're interested, however they want to, to improve the health of their communities, to improve the health of the country, uh, and to make uh, the environment and, and, and the world a better place. And, and, you know, it's just saying, I believe in you. I have faith in you. You can change the world. And I heard that a lot. And we tell young people that all the time. And, and that's really, I think, the key to, uh, to a lot of empowerment. Oh, that's awesome. You know, the hand that rocks the cradle, they say, rules <laughs> the right. world. You know, Philippe, a lot of um, retailers, grocery store chains, they know what I'm about to say. And I've done a lot of market research myself on this. But they know that moms are some of the most powerful consumers the world has ever seen, especially American moms, especially when it comes to consumer goods, uh, things that are purchased in grocery stores and, and what have you. And though I love what you're doing to empower kids, I'm wondering if what you're doing with, you know, the food um, and the food choice connection, what your campaign might look at look like if you were targeting like green mommy bloggers and all the moms <laughs> of America. Um, you know, do you have any plans to do that? Because all I'm saying is I'm getting a lot of tweets from moms who saw your picture as a part of our promo and they're like, yeah, tell me more. What, what could you maybe do to reach out to moms on this issue? Well, you know, we, uh, we're taking baby steps and certainly I agree with you moms. As I said, just a moment ago, my mom had a huge influence on, on me and, and, uh, you know, I, I believe in, in the power of, of, of mothers and this program currently targets young people, 
Um, but part of it is about families, and we really encourage the young people to take home and, and do this kind of a program at home with their families. Uh, and it's really about mothers, you know, being supportive of that and where it where it's appropriate. Well, and I couldn't agree more. I think that moms have a huge impact on not just their own families, but on shaping the market and shaping who we are, um, shaping what is out there. The power of the purse is incredibly powerful. Um, and we've had a lot of guests on our show who've talked about exactly that. If you don't want to see something in your grocery store or in your retail outlet, you have the power to change that. I mean, products are not going to remain on the shelves if we don't want them. Um, and so I encourage moms to get out there. Check out Philippe's website, um, Earth Echo International, uh, earthecho.org. It's amazing. I'd love for, to see moms looking at this curriculum, not just teachers, but moms looking at this curriculum, looking at the guide called What's on Your Fork, and making some choices at home about what you uh, put on your table, uh, maybe showing your kids your values when it comes to environmental protection, when it comes to their health, and let those values be reflected in what you serve um, every night for dinner, what you pack in their lunch boxes, etc. We're going to be taking a quick commercial break in just a moment, but when we come back, we'll be talking to the author of the guide that accompanies Philippe's curriculum. We'll be talking to Catherine Berger Kay. She wrote this wonderful guide called What's on Your Fork? And it will help you and your family, uh, and if you're a teacher, it may help your classroom make the connection between what you're eating, what you choose to buy, and protecting our most precious natural resource, and that is water. So, folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Two views. Different topics. Questions. Answers. News. And advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pestor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Hey. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. We had a great time talking with Philippe Cousteau. And now we're going to be talking with the woman who is the author of the guide that accompanies his brand new program. The guide is called What's on Your Fork? And it's written by Catherine Berger Kay. She is an expert in service learning opportunities. And we're just so pleased to have you on. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Thank you, Jill. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the term service learning, maybe you could start by explaining to us what service learning is and how it benefits students. Absolutely. Service learning is a way for classroom teachers and others who work with young people and students of all ages to apply what they're teaching in the classroom into real-world situations. So, so often what students learn is for a test or they learn it to write papers or they learn it to ideally you know, be more knowledgeable and, and familiar with their world, what we encourage is for students to take that knowledge and really put it into their communities, whether the community is their school or their neighborhood um, or even the world. Students, for example, if they're studying about plants, can plant a garden and then take that produce to a food bank. So now they're connecting what they're learning in science to something in social studies and civics. So service learning is being done in classrooms all over the world, and it's also being done in youth-serving organizations. Uh, it's done in programs to help kids graduate from high school, and even in universities, they're using this as a classroom approach. So we move beyond just something hypothetical or a simulation in learning to something real and actual. And kids really respond well to this because we all know that we learn by doing. That's the best way to learn. And you can't get, you know, you can't really learn how to do a backstroke stroke until you get in the water. So when <laughs> students really do service learning as an approach to teaching, all the knowledge they've been accumulating over the years kind of comes together and it makes sense and kids get excited. Now, usually when kids finish a paper, they don't, they're not, you know, they're done. But when they mm-hmm. do something with service learning, they finish and they say, what's next? Because they know they've done something vital and they get feedback from the community that what they've done has really met a real need. And this is very encouraging for young people in the learning process. Absolutely. Walk us through, if you would, some of the activities that students will work on in your new guide, What's on Your Fork. Give us some idea of some of the things that they'll be doing. Well, with um, What's on Your Fork, students actually go through this service learning process. So they're going to go through these five stages where they investigate a topic, they prepare to do something about the need that they discovered, they take some kind of action, all during the process, they do some reflection on it, and then they demonstrate their story. And, and this is what we've used in all of our now seven action guides available through the Water Planet Challenge is this kind of sequence. So part of what they do for investigation is they get to identify their own skills and talents that they bring to the table. Because when you can connect what they're going to be doing with something they're really interested in and build on the skills and talents they have, that's very exciting for kids. So, for example a student who really likes to take photography, 
they can use that skill all during what they're doing with the service learning process to document what they're learning and, and so forth. Um, other activities are, well, they get to read, obviously, because reading is always the hub of, of so much learning. So we have information from Philippe Cousteau, who you interviewed earlier, an essay from him that introduces the topic and the theme. And we also have an interview with Sid Lerner. And Sid Lerner is the founder of Meatless Monday Campaigns, which is part of the uh, impetus behind this service, this guide for um, for teachers and families and kids. So we have an interview with him, who and, and Sid goes over a lot of the health factors that are involved in making meatless choices. Part of the centerpiece in getting started with students is they get to conduct a food choice audit, and I think this is a really critical part of the process. And this connects a lot of the academic skills that kids have been learning in school with lifelong skills that they'll need to be doing forever. You know, it's basically market research. They get Mm -hmm. to interview at home or at school and do surveys. They find out what people have access to in the marketplace. They get to see what they really look at what's on the menus, let's say the fast food restaurants they're eating at or the restaurants they may go to with their families. So they get a real good assessment of what really is out there in, in their community. And part of what's exciting about the Water Planet Challenge resources, such as what's on your fork, is all the audit materials are provided. So everything's right there in the package that you can download for free for students to use. That's Something fantastic. else that's really keen in, in doing marketing, and especially when you go out to meet with people in the public, is knowing how to tell them what you're doing and what you're up to. So being able to give an elevator speech. I you know, love that, that segment of the guide. And actually what's cool about it is you have Philippe's uh, elevator speech in there. Tell us more about that. I, I think that's a great part of the guide. Well, what's fun is, you know, I speak to schools and kids and teachers all around the world, and I'll say, do you know what an elevator speech is? And very few people know what that is because, mm-hmm. as you know, it comes from more of a business business world. An elevator speech is imagine you get on a get on an elevator in some you know, high-rise building, and all of a sudden President Clinton is standing there, and you have seven floors to get your message across to him or to any other you know, person who's got a, some influence in the world. So you have to have succinct, good, strong, memorable messages as you ride up that elevator. So what would you say on the first floor? What would you say on the second floor? You know, how would you give them information about who you are and what you want to accomplish? And then on the seventh floor, make sure you've got your ask. And kids really relate to this because, you know, with all they're doing on, on Twitter and all this kind of messaging, they know that you have a short amount of time to get a message across. So they really kind of go to this with, with great, you know, gusto. They like doing elevator speeches. So this is a lot of fun for them. And it's a technique that once they know how to do this, they can apply this in many parts of their learning, not just with this one action guide, but if they're doing a job interview or they're trying to convince their parents to let them go somewhere. I mean, elevator speech can come in really, really handy for teenagers. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Really appreciate that. I have two teenagers in the house, and uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking great. about. Then. I do, I do. <laughs> They're very persuasive. Well, I've got to ask you this: When you envision students using the guide, do you have in your mind any kind of um, comparison between maybe the experience of going through this guide for a child who's growing up in an an urban setting, kind of far removed from food production, as opposed to a kid who lives in rural America near where food is produced. When you envision these two groups of students going through your guide, what similarities and differences do you expect they might encounter in their uh, in their journey through the guide? Well, first of all, we know that all kids like to eat, so that's a common <laughs> common marker to start with. Um, 
I have taught in and spent a good amount of time in rural America myself, as well as taught and lived in suburban and urban settings. So I've got a good sense of what's going on there, and you're absolutely right. Kids in our rural communities are clearly closer to our food sources, and they're more familiar on some levels. But what I've discovered is even where students live in agriculture communities, it doesn't mean they've really thought about some of the issues we raise in the food guide, the uh, what's on your fork guide. So they may not have thought about the choices they make and how that really affects health and environmental issues. So having a chance to really look at at the choices they have available to them through this will be as relevant for students in rural settings, even growing up around around agriculture. And for kids in, in urban, you know, we all know that a lot of kids are completely disconnected to where food comes from and what are the real issues that gets, a, you know, food in a supermarket available or on a plate in a restaurant or on their, their plate at home. So they do need a, an exposure to some of the issues. So they both learn from the content that we've given. They may have different ways they respond to it. For example, in the action guide, we give many examples of what kids are really doing around this topic. And I was able to speak with a wonderful teacher named Stephen Ritz, who's in the Bronx. And his school is located in what Philippe mentioned earlier, commonly called a food desert, where the main access to food and groceries is from corner markets. And Stephen, Stephen's high school students were once talking because they were doing a unit on how things grow. They were discussing how plants grow up in the cracks of the cement jungle they live in. And they started becoming curious about how food grows. And this really grew into the students starting to plant nutritious foods. And in his classroom and in a small outside garden, these students have grown 20,000 pounds of vegetables using vertical walls and technology. It's amazing. We've included a photograph of the, the students and the teacher and the food they're growing. And this led them to doing a farmer's market held on their school campus. Now, we always wonder, can students really have impact in their community and influence as you and Philippe were talking about earlier? Well, we know they can, and this is one example, because 400 people from the neighborhood came to shop at this farmer's market, which shows the community may really be hungry for food products that are green, that are freshly grown, and have that wonderful off-the-farm flavor. And even in urban settings with limited space, Stephen's example is a great one that kids can still grow food. So we can expose kids to all kinds of these issues, whether they're in rural and urban, and find these kind of maybe even partnerships with technology. Kids in urban and rural communities can partner and learn how to work together. That would even be more exciting. That would be exciting. And, you know, in the Bronx and in the greater New York City area, they have such a great resource uh, in an organization called Grow NYC. And I, I'm such a fan. I've had them on Go Green Radio a couple of times. But they have quite a robust program going on in the city with tools and resources and, and staff to help um, any community, whether it's a classroom or, or a neighborhood, to do exactly what you're mentioning that Stephen did with his classroom. I, I want to ask this question because when you talk about service learning, I mean, service indicates that you're serving someone else. How do you make the connection to kids that their food choices uh, impact others or can somehow be a service to others? Well, what we want to do here is make sure that young people, we always have to start with ourselves and, and think about what we're doing. And from that point of personal information, gaining information, we start making choices every day. 
so when students start seeing, young people start seeing that they could make choices that, are, that influence their community, this is quite significant. I think even being aware that, you know, when the, let's say a fast food restaurant they go to may or may not have choices that they like, once they start knowing that from inside, they may then start talking to people, talking to managers, writing letters. Like you said before, you know of kids who have made changes in both policy and, and what's going on. So giving kids that kind of uh, connection that what they think and what they do may actually lead to doing service towards others is what we're looking for here. That it's that where does service start? It starts with our own personal choices and our own ways that we choose to live our lives. And then how do we extend that outside of ourselves? Outstanding. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, folks, but don't go away because there's much more Go Green Radio. We'll be back with Catherine. She's going to talk more about this free guide that you can access on earthecho.org called What's on Your Fork. It's great for parents, great for teachers, and it's aimed at helping middle and high school students make this connection between what's on your fork and protecting your own health and the environment around you. So don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'd like to give a big shout-out to all my tweeps. We are continuing the discussion about food, about water, pollution, and how to protect our waterways by making smart, healthy food choices. If you'd like to be a part of that conversation, you can do it a couple of ways. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Jill Buck. That's at J-I-L-L-B-U-C-K. Or you can go to my website for my uh 
environmental education program that is kind of like my fourth baby uh, called the Go Green Initiative. You can check us out at www.gogreeninitiative.org and join our Facebook page, the Go Green Face Space. We have people from 67 countries that are a part of that community, and we're constantly talking about these kinds of issues. Well, today's guest, if you're just joining us, uh, we had Philippe Cousteau on at the beginning of the show, and now we have Catherine Berger Kay. She's the author of a companion guide that goes with uh, a new program that Philippe has introduced on EarthEcho.org, um, and her guide is called What's on Your Fork, and it's a great, very comprehensive guide that helps students understand the connection between what they're choosing to eat and protection of our most precious natural resource, and that is water. You know, Catherine, on the break, we were talking about some of the uh, benefits uh, that students will receive by being part of the service learning opportunities, and you brought up a great point about career choices. Talk more about that for our listeners, if you will. Well, what's exciting is that when kids get out in the real world and they're uh, meeting restaurateurs or restaurant owners or managers or chefs, or they're meeting with people who grow food in our communities or sell food, they're in each occasion learning about different career choices that they might want to consider for themselves. And what we've learned is that as young as middle school, when students are exposed to different career opportunities, this is one of the factors that keeps kids in schools. And with the tremendous dropout rate around the country right now in the United States, it's something we have to you know, keep in mind. And when kids are exposed to these kinds of careers, this can be a large influence for them as they move through their school and give them more interest in science, for example, which is really important these days, or help them really follow up with keeping track of their own um, you know, resume, for example, so that they're more prepared to work in the world or go on to higher education. And service learning is also a great resume builder because it gives kids that real-life experience that they need to see what, what real choices they will have in their future. Absolutely. How are you measuring the success of this program, Catherine? I mean, how will you know when you've started making a difference in American food production? I'm just curious, are there certain metrics that you're keeping an eye on that will serve as an indicator that the tide is shifting? Well, we're still in those baby steps of of getting this word and this information out there, so we're going to have to see over time how this evolves. One of the things that's great, and one of our partners in this process is the National Education Association Foundation is offering grants for schools that would like to take on the Water Planet Challenge, including what's on your fork. So as we find partner schools in different communities who are taking on this challenge, we'll be able to follow up in those areas and see how students have made short and long-term changes in their communities. Um, we're also inviting students to contribute to a recipe bank, and that's another way we'll be able to follow up and see our kids using that bank. Are they drawing from it? Are they interested in making personal and collective choices for their schools and their families? And also in our partnership with the Meatless Monday campaign, we'll be able to see if schools are coming or communities are coming to this campaign uh, initiative through our Meatless uh, Monday campaign that we're suggesting through What's on Your Fork. So we'll be able to measure and find out how we're influencing. Some of it is we're going to have to sit back and watch. And um, another way we're we're hoping to find out, though, is turning students into citizen journalists through another one of our action guides called About Citizen Journalism, that students can track these changes in their community and help us really record what is going on. As they learn and start paying attention to these issues, we want them to document, make news reports, and upload them again to the Earth Echo website. 
Well, and I've got another option for you, too. I just tweeted about this yesterday. Um, there was an article on Reuters, and I'm such a news junkie. I have like 25 news apps on my iPhone, so I'm constantly combing mainstream media for relevant topics to the environment. And it just so happened that there was an article yesterday on Reuters that was called, Where's the Beef? U.S. Beef Consumption in Decline. And the USDA has said that uh, beef consumption is actually down by 13% over 10 years ago. So maybe that's another metric that you guys could be looking at. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely significant, I would have to say. I, I love the concept that you introduce in the guide. I absolutely love this. And you, you call it voting with our fork. <laughs> uh, explain that to our to our listeners just a little bit, what you mean by voting with our fork. What we choose to buy is, a, is, a, is kind of voting. I mean, it's kind of going out and saying, I've got all these choices. They're like, you know, what's in the market is kind of like your set of candidates, right? So which ones will I vote for? Which ones will I purchase to take into my home? And as, as you're saying, if we are reducing our meat consumption by 13%, we're giving a loud and clear message to some of our markets of what we want you to carry and what you, we want you to serve in restaurants so that we do vote by what we pick up and what we eat with that fork. You know, if, if schools and if our communities adopt this idea of having meatless choices, let's say just on Mondays, of course you could do it seven days a week, but of course on Mondays, and they see that customers in restaurants or what people are purchasing on the weekend to prepare their Monday meals are plant-based choices, they will see that they have to make adjustments and adaptations. And when this is done through you know, an informed populace with young people leading the way, this is going to be really exciting for our, our change. And this may ultimately influence some of our politicians and the policymakers to make these more available and revisit what is being served in our school cafeterias and so forth. So by what we, what we stab that fork into is going to make a huge difference. It's going to make a difference to our health, to our environment, and eventually to our policymakers. Well, I can't help but think that if you're successful in getting kids to embrace their power as consumers, they'll also understand that not only can they vote with their forks, they can vote with their wallets as well. And I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball for a second, Kathy. If you, if this program is successful in empowering young people to shape their purchasing options by exercising that power of the purse that we talk about so much on Go Green Radio, how do you imagine this country being different, say, 20 years from now than it is? today? I would like to see that that term, for example, food deserts is gone, that we have fresh food, fresh fruit, vegetables, and, and grains, and healthy choices available in every community, even our urban areas where at present those are not so available uh, in the quantity and the resources like we'd like to have, that young people and their families, all of us, are more aware of the connection between food choices and our health and the environment, and that these choices come to life with kids being more physically active, uh, where they're outdoors in nature a great deal more, and maybe everybody has a little backyard garden, whether it's in pots or whether it's in the soil, you know, in the ground, that people are knowing that, that we can really influence what we put on our table by what we do and, and what we choose. For schools, it'd be just wonderful to, to know that they were applying these ideas in everyday teaching, that there was a deep connection with what kids are learning and what they're able, how they're able to use that for the benefits of others. This connection between learning and service is highly motivational for kids and for teachers as they see that they can 
take what they're learning on the written page and translate it into their actions. Um, it'd be great to have more school gardens in every community, you know, school gardens in schools, but also kids planting gardens in their community for the benefit of others. All these, when we coalesce around having available choices and options for people, we're really going to start seeing a difference in our society, whether it's our health or our waterways, get rid of those dead zones out there, and really make, you know, have kids be the ones who are showing that they have the skills and talents right now. Very often kids are told they have to wait till they're older to be people of influence or make real change in their communities. But we know that they can make them now. The young people have that ability to be real activists and advocates now, and they can begin with what's on their fork. I love it. And, you know, I think that sometimes uh, people think of it as taking a step back uh, when we're teaching math and science and everybody's into high-tech everything, uh, that it's taking a step back to talk about our water infrastructure, to talk about uh, our electricity transmission, to talk about our food production, that maybe uh, we've evolved so much or we've got all these systems down pat to the extent that we don't have to worry about that. Now we can go on to inventing new innovations and iPads and things. But the fact is, I mean, we need an intelligent and engaged and empowered citizenry to ensure that all these advances that we've made um, in bringing these services and these commodities to our homes and to our places of business um, do not uh, degrade. And so we still need to know where our food comes from, where our water comes from, uh, where our energy comes from, so that we can be a part of intelligent and informed public policy making. Kathy, I want to thank you so much for being on Go Green Radio and thank you for the work that you're doing. Folks, check it out on earthecho.org. You can download all of this for free, which I just love. And, uh, you know, we're going to be here same place, same time next week with more Go Green Radio. So until then, have Have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.